you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mosaic Church Online today. My name is Morgan, the lead pastor here, and I'm really excited to begin a brand new series with you today. And the reason that I'm especially excited about it is because I think... And I believe that if we can, if we can get right what we're about to hear over these next six weeks, if we can get that right, we really can create the kind of world, the kind of church, the kind of community we all want to be a part of. And what I mean by getting it right is by living out one little two-word, super powerful, amazing phrase we see over and over in the mouth of Jesus and in the mouths and the pens of those first century Christians, those who followed him. It's this single phrase, one another. And what's so amazing about that phrase, one another, is that every time you see it used, every time uh, you see it in the Christian scriptures, what we call the Bible, you always see a different word, a different verb in front of it. It's, it's almost like there's a like a like a running one another to-do list that we're given. There's stuff in there like encourage one another. Now that sounds like something I I think I'd kind of like. Uh, there's something like forgive one another, but I'm not so sure about that one. There's sharpen one another. Uh, that kind of sounds painful. There's exhort one another. I have no idea what that means, we think. But then there's this big one. There's this foundational one, this one that we just can't get around or get past, and it's here from the mouth, the lips of Jesus Christ himself, which is what we're going to look at today. And, and it, made me think, it made me think that it's really important as to what we put in front of those two little words, that one little phrase. It's really important what we fill in the blank with when it comes to how we one another, one another. Because more often than not, and you know this, in our world, we don't fill in the blank with stuff like serve one another, forgive one another. The words you heard like encourage one another. Those aren't exactly the most natural word or words you want to put in front of one another. What comes way easier is stuff like gossip about one another or like post on the HOA group thread like, hey, just want to remind whoever lives at 305 Lakewood Trail that subparagraph 492 section B applies to everyone in the neighborhood. Forgive one another is way harder. Sit in the break room at work and process one another. That's way easier. Scream at one another in traffic is easier. Compete with one another. Profit off one another. Forget about one another. Be suspicious of one another. Blame coronavirus on one another. Hate one another. And as we've seen over the last few months, with just the tip of the top of the list of names like Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, that list goes back and forward. All of that can sometimes now lean toward and culminate with kill one another. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus' words we're going to look at right here today, they don't seem so cute. They don't seem so trite. They don't seem so Hallmark card approved. They suddenly seem impossible and like life or death. Because you know what? They are impossible on their own. We'll see that. And they are life and death. And they were for Jesus too. Because right here in this passage we're going to look at, 
on the night he was betrayed, we're going to see in John chapter 13, on the night he was betrayed in the account of Jesus from his friend, an eyewitness by the name of John, the gospel writer John recorded this moment in these words of Jesus. And Jesus tells us today, when it comes time to what we ought to fill in the blank with, when it came time to put before those two little words, one another, this is what Jesus of Nazareth says. It says, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how can we do that? How can we fill in the blank well, fill in the blank rightly and love one another. How do we do that? There's three things here that I want you to see today from the words of Jesus. There's something new that he's calling us to lean into. There's something old he's telling us to leave behind. And finally, we'll see. There's something extraordinary he calls us to live on. Something new to lean into, something old to leave behind, something extraordinary to live on. Let's go, number one, and look at what this new thing is he calls us to lean into. What is it? Well, Jesus said right here, there's this new command I give you, Love one another. Now, on one hand, though, this call to love wasn't totally new because Moses, the, the lawgiver to the Jewish people, these people in the upper room would have known that that night, he had given the Jews a similar command hundreds and hundreds of years before this when he said, love thy neighbor. But Jesus says, even though you've heard that before, this is something new I'm going to show you. I'm going to give something old in a new way. I want you to see it through a new lens. Moses gave you ten commandments. I'm giving you one. It's old, but I'm showing you something new about it. What is it? Well, I'll start like this. Uh, I can tell whenever I speak or preach in front of a group of, uh, of any kind of people, of any background, whenever I talk about stuff like God's love, everybody loves it. You probably love it. I love it. When I talk about God's wisdom, people appreciate it as in like, oh yeah, getting smarter already. Appreciate that very much. That's good stuff. But whenever I talk about God's glory, about the glory of God, people's eyes glaze over. They sort of shift in their seats or they shift in their beds, which is probably what some of you did just now when I said those words. Why? It's because the idea, the phrase, the glory of God, it sounds so ambiguous, so vague. I mean, like, like if I ask you to describe right now, because I kind of am, or define right now, the glory of God, what would you say? How would you define it? It's not that easy. But if you'll notice right here, in the same breath that he talks about love, Jesus connects love to one word more than any other right here. It's that word, glory. Once, once Judas Iscariot walks out of the room to betray him, Jesus says, now I'm beginning to be glorified. Now God the Father is beginning to be glorified. Now the glory of God is about to be shown like it never has before. And he's telling his disciples, if you can see that, if you can get that, if you can touch that, you can love one another. So what's the glory of God? 
what's the glory of God really like? Well, there have been a few people in history who have kind of sort of tried to describe it and explain it. Ezekiel, for example, the, the crazy Hebrew prophet uh, in, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, he saw visions of stuff, visions of the future. It made like Dr. Strange seem like Mr. Normal. And once upon a time, he saw a vision of the glory of God. He wrote a whole chapter about it, trying to describe it. It's like this weird, funky chapter. He said the glory of God's got like eyes that are everywhere. It sees everything. It's got like wheels. It never stops moving. It's everywhere. And at the end, this was his best stab, his summary statement of the glory of God. You ready? Here's what he said. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. As in, it sort of, it kind of appeared like, sort of like what I was describing of the stuff I just saw, as in, I really have no idea, but it was awesome. And then it says, Ezekiel says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. He's saying it was incredible, but it's indescribable. So if Ezekiel couldn't quite get it, if the Hebrew prophets couldn't quite get us all the way there, who can. Well, a few years later, the Greeks took a stab at that word glory as well. That Greek word for glory, you may know, is the word doxa. It means brilliance or bright, like a, like a billion watt bulb at a concert that when it comes on, it lights up the night. It illuminates everything as far as the eye can see. See, when it shines, now it defines everything around it. When Moses, again, for example, when he came down once upon a time with those commandments from Mount Sinai, he had to cover his face, not because he was COVID positive, but because his face was shining from an encounter with the glory of God. His face was too brilliant and bright to look at. But Jesus says, right now, right now, as my betrayer is walking out of the room, right now, as I'm beginning to be betrayed, right now, as I'm beginning to head towards the cross, right now, as I'm beginning to suffer, I'm beginning to shine, to reveal my glory and the glory of God in a brand new way. And he's saying, if you can get that, if you can lean into what that means, you can love one another. This is, this is so, so strange for us to consider and to define because if Jesus really is a king, if he really is God, then that is not at all like the kind of glory you expect anyone to ever get or to deserve, especially someone who's royalty. I mean, if you've ever seen movies or shows where there's like a, a coronation like T'Challa and Black uh, Panther or like uh, Queen Elizabeth on the crown, uh, when royalty ascends to the, the throne, there's pomp of some sort, circumstance, there's honoring, deference, there's a kind of grandeur, a kind of beauty that you just can't take your eyes off of. I mean, even today in royal weddings somewhere, anywhere, it doesn't matter what culture it is, when you see the video or the picture, you can't stop staring because of the majesty, because of the kind of glory that's there in that moment. You just can't take your eyes off it, off of him, off of her. And yet, if you would have been there on that Good Friday, if you would have been there for the last hours of the life of Jesus Christ, as he was betrayed, whipped, nailed, pierced, and crucified, you wouldn't have stared at his glory. You would have wretched, you would have vomited, and run away. So what are we being shown? What are we being told here? We're being told by Jesus, with his disciples, what we're about to see happen in his life is the very center 
of the glory of God. What's happening right here is that there's a new kind of glory we're being pointed to and shown, and therefore, a new kind of love we can demonstrate. What do I mean? I mean this. It's one thing to say you love someone. It's another thing to let your love shine for them. As a husband, as a father, a dad, it's one thing to tell my family that I love them. It's another thing to let my love for them shine. Uh, See, it's one thing for God to say he loves you. It's another thing for God to show you that he loves you. And how did he do that? Oh, Jesus is saying, I'm going to lose all my glory for you, that you, in a way, may be glorified, make you glorious. He lost his beauty for you to make you beautiful. See, the king of the universe, though he deserved the crown, though he deserved the throne, he modeled perfect leadership. He taught with perfect wisdom. He washed his disciples' feet, instructed them to do the same. In the end, he was betrayed by one, abandoned by the rest, stripped naked, and beaten beyond recognition to save those same people. That's the glory of God. His love for you and his judgment on all sin and evil and his wisdom for both at the cross shine out the most clearly as he suffers, as he gives his life away And if you can see that, if you can catch that, now you can understand why he's saying, if you can see what's at the center of him, of the glory of God. That's why he says, now you have to have love for one another. See, the old commandment, old commandment, love thy neighbor. That's good, but that's based on what? Mere equality, mere equality, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, no more no less than what someone deserves. But this commandment is better. This one's new. Love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. And to do that, oh, to do that, to really lean into that, number one, now means number two, we're gonna have to, at the same time, leave something else, something old, behind. What's that? Well, it's right here in Jesus' words, though, as Americans, especially, we're going to struggle with them. What do we have to leave behind? Well, when Jesus says, love one another, he's saying that you all have to, because it's a command, you all have to, because it's not a suggestion for the Christian, you must all love who? He said, one another. And the disciples would have said, are you sure about that? Jesus would have said, yes, because who was in the room that night? Let's talk about that. The wealthy, the poor, a Jewish nationalist, a sellout of his nation, educated, not so much, skeptic, the true believer. And Jesus said, like a, like a true Texan sort of kind of in that moment, he's saying, y'all got to love y'all. Y'all got to love y'all. In other words, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to show the world who I am, you're first going to have to give up and leave behind. Here's the word, your autonomy. Your autonomy is in, you just can't do you anymore and follow me. You're saying today, yes, I can. I'm telling you, no, you can't. You say, yes, I can. I say, no, you can't. And now you're, you're arguing with the guy on the screen. No. Freedom and autonomy are two different things. Think about it. Think about it. If you really want to be loved, if you want to experience the freedom, the true beauty of a love relationship, the most meaningful experience in this life, committed love, to really experience that, you've got to give up 
your autonomy in order to get the security that true love brings, the intimacy that true love brings, the personal and emotional support that an authentic love relationship provides and brings. You must restrict yourself. You must lose your autonomy in a thousand ways. Do you know the last time I hung out with my buddies or went to the movies without asking my wife permission? You say, Morgan, I know for sure it was at least before March because that's when COVID hit. Now, listen, it's been way longer than that, like circa the year 2000. You say, well, who's in charge of that relationship? You know, who makes the decisions? I say, I do. And that's why I decided to ask for permission. Now, please, please, of course, I'm, I'm kidding. Hear, hear, hear what I'm saying. Here, please hear what I'm saying. You go ahead. You be free to do whatever you want to. Go wherever you want to, for example, in your marriage, and you let me know how that works out for you. Why, what does Paul tell both men and women in marriage? He says, submit to one another. Lose your autonomy for each other. But we forget this in marriage and certainly in the church. We forget this. Why? Because we live, in part because we live in the United States of America, where we love to emphasize things like being self-directed, being self-governed. And those are things with concepts inside them that are good and healthy and right. Like, like, like if you need someone to get you out of bed every day to get to work on time, you need help. Be self-governing, but when self, being self-governing is overlaid with the American myth of the self-made person, a person of unlimited choice, absolute freedom. We, and when we idolize like we have those figures in movies, in sports, in entertainment, when we do that, we do that to our own detriment. And so we have forgotten now this truth, which is this, that it's a really fine line between being free as you want to be and addiction. It's a fine line between being free as a bird and divorce. It's a fine line between being free to say whatever you want to say and being friendless. It's an even finer line, as I've seen, even in people that I love and care for. A fine line between no one can tell me what to do and prison. See, at some point, Without a limit, at some point, without a buffer, what started out as self-government becomes unlimited autonomy. And that's an appetite we feed because when we are autonomous, literally, and when we are, as the word means, a law unto ourselves, self-law, now, people, relationships, they become a means to an end. Everyone becomes a dollar sign. Everyone's a potential customer. People aren't people anymore. We don't love one another. Because being in charge, being autonomous, it makes you feel powerful. And power is a kind of a drug. And drugs are intoxicating. And intoxicated people rarely make good decisions. See, intoxicated people, people under the influence, don't make decisions in the best interest of others, only themselves. Why? Because unlimited autonomy in the end reduces you. In the end, every man or woman for himself dehumanizes us. And in the end, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Not only doesn't even work for everyone, it isn't even Christian. A new commandment I give you, said Jesus. Pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. No, love one another as I have loved you. And listen, I know this is hard. I wish Jesus had given us a bigger 10-point list of stuff right here. This is super hard. And I know they're, they're, they're at the same time, there are 10,000 plus other voices that will legitimize your feelings, justify a desired decision. You have to walk away 
from one another, to fill in the blank with walk away from. I know that there are a hundred sample studies, 10,000 news articles written with maybe inflammatory headlines that may even speak a lot of truth in. Yes, where there's truth, we should listen. We should learn. We should do better. But I know beyond all the headlines and those voices, there is still one voice that keeps coming back. There is one voice that keeps saying, love one another. By this, all people will know that your mind is not even about you loving each other. It's about you showing the world me, and not when it's easy, not when it feels good. But it happens when you love one another. So how can we do this? How can we leave autonomy behind, living for self behind, and lean into the glory of God. Well, finally here, there's something extraordinary. Jesus is about to show us that we have to live on in order to do all of this. What do we have to live on? What is that? You may have seen uh, over this past week or so that civil rights icon John Lewis has passed away, but one of the voices from that era that's still around, it's been a, a major influence in my life, is someone by the name of Reverend John M. Perkins, and he and his wife, Vera Mae Perkins, uh, loved Jesus deeply, uh, and they not only did that, they intentionally pastored a church in Mendenhall, Mississippi in the 1960s and 70s to bring Jesus to the community, but he also marched, he also protested, he also sat in, he believed that the gospel of Jesus was not only just for saving souls, which it is, but it's for reconciling people and breaking the power of hate. But then, December of 1969, right before Christmas, something happened which changed him for forever. One of the black members of his congregation named Doug had been arrested one night for supposedly disturbing the peace. And John, so John Perkins and his four school-aged children and a friend, they went to the police station to get Doug out. And when Reverend Perkins began to protest his members' arrest and police there in Mendenhall, they arrested him, his four-aged school children, uh, his, his friend. They locked him up and they began to beat Reverend Perkins in front of the children. Now, the, the police eventually released the kids and they told them to go on home and keep quiet about the whole thing. But of course, as the word got out, about the pastor being beaten, there began to be a gathering at the police station with people demanding that Reverend Perkins be released. And Vera May, his wife, she wrote about it that night. She captured the moment. And here's what she said happened next. It was a tense, tentative standoff with white police, state troopers, jailhouse officials, edgy and hostile, facing the gathered crowd of frightened but determined black kids, neighbors, and friends of John Perkins. The police wouldn't let me in to see him, and they kept trying to make us disperse, but none of us wanted to leave until we saw that John was all right. We stood out there in the dark, praying and crying, the air thick with the tension between love and hate. Suddenly, John appeared at the window of the jailhouse and started to speak. A hush fell over the crowd as he spoke, and you could hear the pity and sadness in his voice. He said many things, but his words were not angry or rash or fearful. He spoke gently, trying to reach the hearts, not just the ears, of the people with a loving message of self-sacrificing gospel truth. I don't know what it's going to take for all this to come to an end, said John. If somebody has to suffer, I'm willing and if somebody has to die, I'm ready. Fear May Perkins says that those words from John in that moment brought the crowd together, brought them together in unity. And she said from that, they reaped what she called harvest of healing, brotherhood, 
hope and progress that still exists to this day in Mendenhall, Mississippi. And John Perkins, he's been, of course, rightly honored for his work over the decades across the country. Even, even the Christian band Switchfoot wrote a song about him called The Sound or John M. Perkins Blues. And their line about him goes like this. It said, John Perkins said it right, that love is the final fight. Now listen, I know sometimes those words, they feel like they work. And sometimes it feels like they don't. But here's what, here's what I want you to see. What was John M. Perkins doing that night? Advocating? Yes. Marching? Yes. Protesting? Yes. But underneath it all, he was also loving. Also loving. Now where do you suppose he learned how to do what he did? Where did he get the power to do what he did and to say what he said? I think he got it right here. Because the night that Jesus gave that new commandment, a few verses later, that same evening, at that same dinner, in that same moment, Jesus added something else to the new commandment. And what he said that night shows how he himself gives us the key we need, the power we need to live all this out. In chapter 15, a few verses later, Jesus repeats the new commandment. And then he says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. And in that, that chapter, he compared himself to a vine and us to branches. He said like a, like a branch that can't possibly sprout or like a branch that can't possibly bear fruit or do anything useful at all. He says in the same way, we can do nothing. We can love no one truly if we don't live in him, live on him first. We can, he's saying, only live out loving one another as we live on his love, live on his person, live on himself. And here's why, here's why this is so crucial to see because Jesus is saying here, he's saying here, I'm not just your example, though I am that. I'm not even just your substitute, though he's saying that. He's saying, I am also your source. I am your source. You can't get what you need on your own. You're not even spiritually autonomous. You are utterly dependent on me to save you, to keep you, and to change your heart, and to soften your heart, and to give you courage. So yes, 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 I am the one who lived the life you could not live, and I'm going to die the death that you could not die, so that you can get what I deserve uh, for, uh, in spite of all the ways you have not loved God, have not loved your neighbor as yourself. But but you can only love one another as you abide in my love. If you'll do that, you'll find what you need to do the difficult, if not impossible, work and task of loving one another and showing Jesus to the world. Let me ask you, do you lack love today? I know sometimes I do. Sometimes I feel like that. Let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, all the Christians, let me ask you a question. If you do, are you abiding in the vine Abiding in the love of Jesus. See, his, Jesus' command to love one another, it's given, can you see, with the honest realization that it's impossible outside the human heart being filled with his love first. If we will lean into what glory really is, if we'll leave behind our autonomy, and if we will live in and on the love of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, we really can't do this. We really can love one another. And let me give you now a final picture of what I think this could, maybe even should, look like. 
few years ago, I was doing some ministry work in Nashville, Tennessee. I was there for a few nights on my own, working there with campus missionaries with Every Nation Campus. And, uh, and so after I was done, I went to the YMCA there locally to try to sneak in a workout before I headed back to my room that night. But when I looked up at the television in the weight room and I saw on there that it was none other than Paul McCartney that was playing in concert in Nashville there that night. I thought, well, what are the odds? What the heck? So I immediately got cleaned up. I grabbed some dinner and I headed down to downtown Nashville with no ticket and no plan. I pulled out a little bit of money from the ATM on the way there to maybe try to find a ticket I could buy off somebody, but I was totally prepared to go home empty-handed. So when a guy there tried to sell me a ticket for hundreds of dollars, an extraordinary amount of money, more than I was prepared to pay, I literally laughed at him and I said, well, this is all, all I got. And he, he, he walked away, sort of grouchy, but then we sort of circled each other for the next 15 minutes or so and he, and he kept on coming down in his price in increments by the hundreds and hundreds of dollars each time, but I kept offering him the same cheapo deal because it's all I had and finally, with literally five minutes before the concert started, he, he walked back up to me and he said, fine, through clenched teeth, and he sold me his ticket for what I had offered. And when I looked down at the ticket, I understood the clenched teeth, and I almost fell over because what I had paid was a mere fraction of the ticket price. I almost felt like I had to, had to, had to hide the ticket. Like, are you serious? Can you believe this? How much this says this ticket's worth? Like, is this thing made out of gold or something? And then, then I got to, to my seat in, in the audience, and right before it started, I was the last one in my section with like a minute to spare. And I found I was only a mere few rows from the front of the stage. And the lady said to me, she said, I thought you'd never get here wondering who was sitting here. I said, I thought I'd never get here too. About an hour ago, I didn't even know I was going to be here. And then I told her the story, how I got there and how much I'd paid for my ticket. And then all of a sudden her face fell. She got kind of mad and said, how much did you pay? And I told her again. She said, I my, my, I, my husband, we paid way more than the price. Even on the ticket, that's how hard this seat was to get. And I just smiled. See that ticket, that piece of paper, it changed in value in my eyes when I saw how much it was worth and then it changed again when I heard how much someone was willing to pay to get it. And when I understood its value, I saw it differently. Let me tell you, it wasn't with silver or with gold, or with a few dollars from an ATM, that you were bought back, the Bible says, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, your old way of life. If you are a Christian, you were bought with the precious blood, the priceless blood of the Prince of Heaven, Jesus Christ. God himself gave himself for you. That is how much you are worth to heaven. And that is how much your neighbor is worth. Your father and your mother are worth, your siblings are worth, your coworkers are worth, your children are worth. So, so brothers, sisters, let's treat each other in keeping with the value, with the price tag that God himself, heaven himself, has laid on us, assigned to us, and given to us. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Hope you can say amen to that. We're going to go to the Father in prayer now and ask for a lot of help and a lot of grace to do just that. God, we just come to you today and we acknowledge, like you hinted at, that we can't do this on our own, that we have to abide in your love first. Truly, the world is looking right now for people who will love one another. Lord, we just ask you to help us see your glory 
more clearly and truly how you gave yourself away. You laid yourself down, made yourself nothing. And yet it was in the end to buy us back. Well, we thank you for that. As we lean into your glory, as we leave behind even a sense of autonomy, I pray today we would find what we need in you as we abide in you to love one another. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.